Right. It's pretty, uh, pretty exciting, huh? Yeah, man, thanks for uh, letting us roll that video, and uh, excited that you're here with us this morning. Um, what you're seeing in the video is really less about buildings, and it's more about God changing lives. Um, we are excited about what God is doing here in our church, and that for us, from our perspective, these buildings are simply tools, they're just boxes, places for us to meet, for more lives to be transformed. So we are excited about what God is doing in the church and still hoping to break ground uh, sometime soon. Stay tuned for the dates on all that. Um, if you're new here and you have no idea what that was all about or what All In is, um, you can go to our website. There's an All In tab. You can click on that and get some more explanation. But you can also talk to anybody on staff, any of our elders, any of our leadership team. We'd love to talk with you in person about uh, what God is doing behind the scenes to prepare this church to be that beacon of hope uh, that this community is going to so desperately need in the future. So um, excited about that. Uh, we are, uh, today is the day for Night of Music. Tonight, 5 o'clock, I know, we are excited. If you have no idea what that is, um, we only do this a couple of times a year where we get the whole church together because we don't really have the space to do it. Uh, So we're going to get together at 5 o'clock. We're going to eat outside. Uh, It's the only way we can all be at the same place at the same time and eat. So we're going to eat outside. Um, It's going to be like brisket, sausage, hamburgers. It's been cooking all night long, some really good food. And then community groups uh, are bringing the desserts, so desserts should be epic as well. And then we'll come into this room to listen to music. Um, We'll start off the night. Our worship team will be presenting songs that they've written. Um, We've got some talented songwriters and musicians. They'll be presenting songs to us that the Lord has laid on their heart, using their talents uh, to to edify us. We just get to sit and listen. And then we'll end the night with a couple songs of worship. So I want to encourage you to come be a part of any part of that night or all the night that you can. Again, we don't get together as a church very often because of space. This is kind of a unique opportunity. So come be a part of that 5 o'clock this evening uh, for dinner, and then we'll do music after that. Uh, also, ladies, this Friday night at 6.30 is the end of the uh, year dinner for the ladies' ministry, and we want to encourage all the ladies to show up, regardless of whether you're 18 or 80. Um, come be a part of that night. Um, they're going to be eating dinner together, I think, a big, big event. I'm not sure what all they're doing. Um, they didn't invite me or run it by me. I just know it's happening this Friday. Um, if you want more info, right when you leave out of the worship center on the right, there's a, a round top table, and there are some different flyers on there. Grab the pink one. That's the ladies' ministry event. That's got all the info you'll need to be a part of that event this Friday night. So there you go. All right, we're going to be in Acts 17 in a moment, and I would like to open us in prayer if I could, and then we'll get started together. Um, Father, we are excited to open your word uh, together with one another and with your spirit. Um, God, we want to say on the front end that we believe in faith, that when we open your word, that that God, you use it to speak to us, God, each one of us. And so we believe you have a specific message for us today. And at the same time, God, we know that when you move, that you you work in our lives to change us, to cause us to be more like Christ. And so today, we expect that to happen. We expect you to work in each of our lives today. And so now we're going to turn our attention to your word, God. Would you speak as only you can do in Christ's name? Amen. All right. Uh, Acts 17, not a whole lot of warm-up or, or intro today. A couple things. You're going to see today almost what seems like deja vu in the book of Acts. The story just seems to keep repeating itself city after city, town after town, village after village, starting in Acts 2. Somebody gets up, talks about Jesus. A large group of people believe in Jesus and become part of the church movement. And then a large group of people reject Jesus and become part of the angry mob. 
It's been happening since Acts 2, over and over again, kind of this deja vu cycle. Now, it's really important, okay? This is a really important thing for us to understand. God isn't trying to bore us by telling us the same story over and over again. What God wants us to see is that the story that's unfolding in the book of Acts is still unfolding today, and we are part of it. This continual story uh, that started in the book of Acts hasn't ended. This isn't the sequel to it. We're still part of that story that God's writing with the church. We're here today because of what God is doing in the book of Acts. Solid Rock, May 21st, 2017, again, is just one continuation of the same story. We'll talk later about why that is so significant. The last thing I want to mention is this. Today we're going to be talking about authority, submission to authority, which is something that um, we all struggle with. Okay, right? We all struggle with it. Whatever form it comes in, we all like to be our own authority. So we'll be talking today about what it means to submit to authority. And, uh, and, and I would propose to you this. Every decision that you make in life is submission to an authority. Every decision. And, and the chief authority that we submit to in our own lives is ourselves. And so I want you to have that in mind as we go to Acts 17 and read the story of Paul and Silas. They're going to be in Thessalonica, and then they're going to go on to Berea. So we'll start in verse 1. All right. So now, when they, it's Paul and Silas, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. You've heard of like Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. Those are letters that Paul writes to these Christians here. So they're in Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to, to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who, whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, once again, seems like the same story kind of playing out. Different names, different towns, but the same story kind of playing out there. What we're going to do today is look at something that comes up in this particular story. Um, and it has to do with God's Word and the role of the Bible in the church and also in our individual lives. So, so Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, he's the one writing this down. Okay? He's writing this narrative out for us so we can know what happened. And in this particular account, he seems to hone in and focus on what Paul is doing with God's Word. He uses three words to describe it. The first thing he says this is that Paul reasoned 
from the scriptures, okay? Now, that word has two different ways that it plays out. First of all, if this Greek word is used about one person in particular, what it means is to think to yourself. You know those moments where you're trying to think through something? You're wrestling with it. You're thinking, well, if I do this and this and this, this will happen. But if I do this, 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 this will happen. You're kind of working through thoughts in your mind, talking to yourself almost. Okay, that's this word right here. You can reason with yourself. However, when it's applied to more than one person, either two people or another person in a crowd, it's the idea of this thought-provoking dialogue, doing the same thing but with one another. So when Luke says that Paul was reasoning with them, what he's not saying is that Paul was up front giving a monologue uh, to the people. He was talking with them. He would say something about Jesus. Somebody would have got a question about that. They would ask a question. He would answer it or respond with a question. And they were working hard, reasoning from the scriptures. The next two words are really helpful. Uh, In the English translation, it says that he was explaining and then he was proving. So let me just kind of talk about what those words mean. The first word, explaining, means to to open up or, or uncover something or unveil something. So it'd be like ladies when you go through security and they say, hey, I'm gonna need you to open your purse. You open it to, to show what's inside. That's this word, okay? You're opening up so that somebody can see inside. It's also the idea like if you took a shovel and you buried it in the dirt, you push it in and you, un- you, you dig up a piece of dirt and you uncover something, reveal that way. That's what this word means, okay? So Paul is, he's, he's reasoning with them from the scriptures. He's uncovering things and opening up God's word to them. The last word that he used was proving, which might make you think of like a court of law, like building your case. It's not quite what this word means. And so the idea is like um, if I said to you um, without showing you, hey, I've, I own a black watch. And you said, well, I don't know if I believe you. I said, well, I could just build this case for why you might believe. I can show you my receipt, maybe show you a picture of me with my black watch. You say, well, that was Photoshop. You don't have a black watch. Okay, that's not what's, that's proving it in a court of law. This word proving means that I actually take the watch off and I I set it before you and show you that I have a black watch. That's the word proving here. So what he's doing is he's opening up the scriptures, setting it before them so they can see it, right? Don't just take my word for it. It's right here in the Bible. Read the Bible. And that's what Luke wants us to understand Paul's doing here in the synagogue with these folks. He's reasoning with them from the scriptures, setting it before them. Now, We're going to learn, um, so later on, several years later, the Apostle Paul um, wants to write a letter to encourage these same folks he's talking with. And this is where we get 1 Thessalonians, okay? It's one of the books in your Bible. It's a letter Paul wrote back to them. And in chapter 1, Paul talks about how powerfully God moved when he was with them, reasoning from the Scriptures, And so if we go to 1 Thessalonians, we get a little bit more insight into what's happening here in this moment from Paul's perspective. So here's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Starting in verse 4, he said, For we know, we all know this, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So what Paul's doing, he's reminding them. Remember whenever we reasoned together about the scriptures? You remember that powerful movement of God? Remember how he brought about this full conviction in your hearts and his Holy Spirit moved on you powerfully? He's gonna go on to say, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's pointing out something there that really only God can do. He's saying, remember how whenever we taught the word and we reasoned with you, we put it before you, you looked at it, you said, man, that's true, that's right. You remember that? You remember what happened? How full conviction came upon you and then this joy welled up inside of you despite the fact that outside the doors was an angry mob just waiting to drag you out to the city and throw stones at you? Do you remember that? He's talking about how powerful the word of God was in this moment. Now what I want to do today is I want to take just a minute to talk about what we believe to be true about the Bible. I think it's an important discussion. Obviously it means a lot to us. Many of you have verses of scripture in your car, your home. Uh, you got, maybe got some ink, got some favorite Bible verses on, maybe in Greek or Hebrew. And so the Bible means something to most of us who are in this room on some level. But what do we believe to be true about the Bible? If you go to our statement of faith as a church, there are five words that are going to come up um, that describe what the Bible means to us and what we believe to be true about it. The first word is this, inspired. We believe as a church the Bible was inspired. That means we believe God initiated it. So men were involved in writing it, but it's not as if God came along after the fact and went, man, I like what you're doing there. Hey, oh man, that's a good write. Let's put this stuff together in a book and we'll call it the Bible, right? No, God is inspiring it. God wanted his testimonies and the accounts of who he is and what he's doing to be written down. He wanted it. It was his idea. Matter of fact, in the old, old Testament, he had it etched in stones, stone tablets. So God initiated the writing down of his word. He wanted to be written down for us. He inspired it. It's his idea. The second word is a little bit tricky. It's the word superintended, okay? Probably haven't used that one yet today, have you, in casual conversation, right? Superintended. It's the idea that when you apply it to scriptures, these authors all had their own reasons for writing down what they wrote down. If you'd have went up to John and said, John, why would you write your gospel down? He said, here's why I wrote the gospel. If you'd have gone to Moses, Moses, why did you write down the first five books in the Old Testament? He'd have given you a reason, right? They had, they had their own intention. The word super intentions means that God comes along and sort of overwrites their intentions to get his intentions out, okay? Now, that, that may be a hard concept to grasp, but it happens in every one of our lives every day, Right? When God comes along and takes something, kind of mistake that we've made or something somebody's done to us and turns it into something good and brings about his intentions. Uh, this is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, Genesis, right? Brothers sell him out. They want him dead. They sell him, make a little money off of him. He becomes a slave. Then later on in the story, they come to him and beg for mercy. Do you remember what he said? Hey, come here, guys. What you intended for evil, that was your intention, God intended for good superintended. You see how that works? And that happens in, in all of our lives, doesn't it? Where God takes a, this mistake we've made, or we go through this hard season, we say, I never would want to go through that again, but I'm now thankful that I went through it. What was the, what's, where's that thankfulness come from? It comes from the fact that God is there superintending good out of evil, okay? And so in a similar fashion, as these authors sat down to write, when we say superintend, we mean that God's spirit kind of superintend or overwrote their intentions to get his message out there so we use the word superintention another word we use is um, that it's inerrant we believe as a church that god's word is without error in its original language okay 
Um, we use a lot of different translations here. We're not a church that says you have to read from this translation. We, um, we acknowledge, we use any translation that seeks to be faithful to the original language. Um, the book of Acts is, has been a great example of that. As we've gone through the book of Acts, we've been checking it against geography and maps and history and dates, and we've found that it is incredibly accurate. I mean, down to the, the border stone of a certain region, Luke is getting it accurate. And we believe in the original language, it is perfect, without error. Perfect. Um, which leads us to the next word, infallible. When we use the word infallible, we mean it doesn't fail. Okay? Proof, you're here today. God's word, working in Acts 17, Thessalonica, accomplished what God wanted to accomplish, and the church kept going. It's why we call this sermon series the Unstoppable Church, because God's word doesn't fail. It accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. And so the last word um, that we would use is the word sufficient. Okay? Now, we're not against reading other books and using commentaries and all those kinds of things. But the Bible is enough to teach me how to be a faithful husband, a respectable father, a good friend, a Christ follower. It's, there's enough in here. If I want to learn how to be a good dad, I can read this. Okay? It doesn't mean that I don't read other books about how to be a leader, how to be a dad, how to be a husband. But all those things pale in comparison to the counsel I get right here. This is sufficient, right? Somebody comes to me and says, I need to read a book on how to be a, a good dad. I can give them this one, right? I can help them out. Here's some places to turn to read, but this is a good source, sufficient source for life. Now, those are things we believe as a church to be true about the Bible. It's why we make such a big deal and we open it. We expect God to do with us and among us what he's doing in the book of Acts, um, there are a couple of places that um, are really helpful to us in, in the scriptures that describe for us um, some, some of the reasons for why we believe these things, okay? Um, one of them is in 2 Peter chapter 1. So Peter um, writes to us and explains to us how this superintention thing works. He doesn't use that word, but he describes the concept. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, listen to what Peter says, and this is helpful I believe so Peter starts with this he says in verse 16 for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ Peter wants you to know they didn't make these stories up they didn't get together have some brainstorming session hey what kind of stories could we make up that would pull on some heartstrings and cause people to join our cause right it's not what they did They didn't manufacture these stories. So he's going to go on to say, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, here's the thing, guys. We saw it with our own eyes. We heard it with our own ears. Now, what's interesting is this. Of all the stories Peter could have chosen, right? I would have thought maybe feeding the 5,000, walking on water, turning water to wine. He could have chosen any of those stories saying, hey, we saw it with our own eyes. We heard it with our own ears. 
he chooses to talk about what's called the transfiguration. There's a real special moment where Jesus takes three, uh, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain, and he transfigures before them, and he lets them see his glory for a moment. Okay? It's a big deal. And that's where God spoke for the second time about Jesus, a voice from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so I think Peter picks this moment because in Peter's mind, this is like the epic moment of his journey with Jesus, hearing God's voice, right? So he'd seen Jesus do a lot of cool stuff, but when he hears God say, that's my son, Peter says, man, we were there. We saw it with our own eyes, right? We heard it with our own ears. And then look at what he says. Verse 19 now, he's going to begin to talk about the scriptures, He says in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So what Peter's going to say is, you want to know that Jesus is the Christ? You want to know you can trust this thing? Go read what the prophet said and then look at what Jesus did. With Jesus, right, Jesus confirms the prophets. He shows them, right, he shows that they didn't just make up those stories and myths, that God was speaking to them because he fulfills it. And so he says, we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So here's what Peter's doing. He's saying the world you live in, it's a dark place. You want a light to kind of light your path up? Use God's word. It works like a lamp. It'll light up your path. It'll show you a direction. It'll illuminate things and show them right for as they truly are. Until that day when the morning star rises, he's talking about the return of Christ. And he's, what he's saying is there's going to come a day you don't need this anymore because you'll have him. Right now, right, wandering around on earth as, as foreigners, right, this is not our home, right, this becomes a light for us and it helps us see and find our way. And so Peter said, hey, you'll do well if you'll, if you'll let this be a lamp. Then he's going to go on to say this. Knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. One of the, one of the proofs that I would say for this is the fact that it was written by so many different authors over such a vast amount of time. It's telling the same story. Just think about that. Different authors, different languages, different cultures, different continents. And God is telling one linear story through the Bible. Then he's going to go on to explain how superintention works. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as Luke sat down to write Acts. He's saying the Holy Spirit was in Luke, had his hand on Luke's hand, superintending words that would become Scripture. Taking whatever intentions he had, right, and superintending them to bring about God's will for his word. Probably one of the most helpful passages of Scripture for me as a Bible teacher comes from Jesus himself in Luke 24. So after the resurrection, in Luke 24, Jesus appears to two guys walking um, on the road to Emmaus. And they're followers of his. There's some, somewhat a little bit of, a, of an irony and maybe some sarcasm here. 
because they don't recognize him. The last time they saw him, he was, a, he was beaten to a bloody pulp hanging on a cross. And so they're walking with the resurrected Christ, and they're sad because Jesus has been killed, and they don't realize they're walking with Jesus. And so look at what Jesus says to them, or more importantly, he does for them. This is in Luke 24, starting in verse 25. And he, being Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones. Now we'll stop right there. So yeah, they're pretty foolish right here, right? But he's not going to say you're foolish because you don't recognize me. Look at what he says. O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What's he saying? You guys have totally forgotten what your Bible says. The Bible tells you I'm supposed to die. And the Bible tells you that I'm going to resurrect from the dead. You're not foolish because you don't recognize me right here, my eyes, my, you know, my face, whatever. You're foolish because you've forgotten what the prophets have said. And then look what he says. And beginning with Moses, that's the first five books in your Old Testament, and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So what Jesus did is he spent time walking through the Old Testament with them, showing them how everything that he did and said and everything that happened to him was part of God's will because he had prophetically laid it out in advance. Isaiah 53, right? By his stripes will be healed. He'll be led to the slaughter like a lamb. Like all those prophecies, Jesus is like, hey, this is all about me. Flips to the next one. Hey, reads Jonah. Hey, this one's about me. Flips to Ezekiel. See all this cool stuff? Yeah, this is about me. Walks through the Psalms. These were about me. And he shows these two guys how the entire Old Testament was about him. Well, if that's not enough, right after that, he goes, he appears to his disciples in the upper room. And look at what he says to them. This is in verse 44, same chapter. He said, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So that phrase is Jesus saying, hey guys, remember before the cross? Remember the things I told you? The things I told you when I was still with you? Look at what he says. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. With his disciples, hey guys, remember all the things I said to you? This Old Testament, these scriptures, they're about me. Right? There isn't a plan B. God didn't get caught off guard here. It was his plan. Now, there's a, there's a word that we use in church. You've heard it. If you've been to any church, you've probably heard it. Let me shed some light on how, what we mean by this word. So the word is gospel, okay? The word literally means good news. So we use that word in two different senses, if you will. The first being in a very specific, condensed version of what happened to Jesus and what he did for us. So the gospel is Jesus lived perfectly among us. He died sacrificially on the cross, resurrected victorious from the grave, ascended back to, the, uh, to his rightful place in heaven, and that by believing on him, you'd have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It's about as condensed as I can make it, right? The gospel. We also use the word, though, to describe something much bigger than that in this sense. The gospel is the framework of your whole Bible. It's one meta-narrative. 
It begins with a perfect creation, three chapters in, goes incredibly wrong with the fall of man and sin. The remainder of your Old Testament is doing two things. So Genesis 1 and part of chapter 2, creation. Perfect, it's good, it's very good. Chapter 3, Adam and Eve take things in their own hands, sin enters the story. From that moment to the end of Malachi, your Old Testament, two things are happening. One, mankind is proving over and over and over again that he can do nothing to fix his problems. Story after story, attempt after attempt. Man tries to take the story into his own hands to fix things, and he ends up making it worse. The second thing that's happening is over and over again, God is in the background whispering this promise, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this by sending a rescuer. I'm going to rescue you. Hold tight. My rescuer is going to come to you humble. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. There will be a star in the sky guiding the shepherds. He'll come to you. You'll know who he is. There'll be nothing about him to draw you to his appearances. He's not going to be a good-looking political leader. He's going to be a humble servant. He's going to live perfectly among you. He's going to be like a lamb led to the slaughter. He's going to die willingly in your place. And by his stripes you will be healed and your sins will be forgiven. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God's whispering that promise to us. Then you get to the New Testament. It begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. What is that? That's the account of Jesus coming to earth, living perfectly, dying sacrificially, resurrecting and ascending. And then Acts going forward is the launch of the church. God's mission to save the nations, to rescue every color of skin, every language, every socioeconomic situation and background. God's plan to rescue the nations. Where does it culminate in? Book of Revelation. Book of Revelation is primarily what? It's the return of Christ and gathering the church to himself, a church of every tribe, language, tongue, nationality, background, all gathering in one place to be the bride of Christ. And do you know where it, where it ends at the very end of Revelation? Back in the garden, in the new heaven and the new earth. It's one story. And, and essentially, Jesus is the framework of the whole story here. And so oftentimes when we say the gospel, we're talking about is the whole Bible is teaching that gospel message over and over and over again to us. And this is what Jesus is telling us. Here's how he wants us to read the Bible. He wants us to, to read the Bible stories looking for him. You read Psalm 23, you need to be thinking about him. When you read Psalm 22, you need to be thinking about him. When you read Psalm 1, you need to be thinking about him. When you read Psalm 51, you need to be thinking about him. When you read Isaiah 53, Isaiah 1, Isaiah 9, every chapter, every page, every word is pointing us towards Christ. Now, how many of you read your Bible that way? It's what Jesus, it's how he told us to read the Bible. And that's what he's doing for his disciples here. Now, there's another word that Luke uses in Acts 17 that I want to draw attention to, and it's the word persuaded. Did you catch that when we read through that? Here's, let's read it again. I think it's verse 6. He says, actually verse 4. And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now, that word persuaded, if we don't give it some, some attention, might think us, make us think that Paul was just a good salesman, right? He persuaded them. He talked them into it. That's not what the word means. The word literally translates to trust or to believe, or both at the same time. That, that's the idea of persuaded here. 
So what Luke is trying to describe for us is that through Paul's reasoning with the scriptures, uncovering it, opening it, setting it before them, that a, a large group of them, right, trusted and believed his message. What was his message? Jesus is the Christ. He's the king, right? It's the thing that the angry mob was so mad about, right? That's what they said. Hey, these guys, they turned our world upside down, right? They're defiling the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king. Arrest them. Stone them, right? Because why? Because they were declaring that Jesus is the king. Now, I want to I let this land more personal if we could today. And I want to ask you a question for you to think on, maybe to reason with. Have you been persuaded that Jesus is the king? Now, I'm not asking... Do you have Christian t-shirts in your closet and sometimes you wear them in public? I'm not asking if you have Christian bumper stickers and maybe one that says Jesus is Lord or the little stick-on fish that represent your family. I'm not asking if you have your radio station dialed into KLTY, safe and fun for the whole family. Okay? These are all Bible Belt indicatives of what it looks like to be a Christian in our culture. Well, I'm not asking you of those things. I'm asking you, have you truly made Jesus your king? Because that's different. I was, uh, I was talking with a, with a friend of mine who's a pastor at a church here in Fort Worth. Um, he's only been here about two and a half, three years. He, he moved here from Seattle, from the Northwest. And that's where I actually met him, was in Seattle. And so I was talking to him at an event, and I was asking how it was going. I said, hey, how are you enjoying Fort Worth and your church? And, you know, he just kind of shook his head. I'm like, what? What is it? He's like, you know what? My greatest challenge is as a pastor here in Fort Worth. I said, what? Lay it on me. He said, convincing people that they're not saved. That's a, that's a, what do you mean? He said, well, here's the thing. Everybody knows what it's supposed to look like here. Everybody looks the part. They've got the wardrobe. They know what to, the right things to say. But they haven't made Jesus their king. It's different. Like, everybody here in the Bible Belt's saved. My greatest task is to convince people you're not really saved. Quit relying on, right, the fact that you grew up in church and, right, you know the lingo. You got the sticker. You got the T-shirts. Quit relying on that junk. You must make Jesus your Lord to be saved. He's got to be your king. Now, I've put together some statements here that might help us think through what it truly means for Jesus to be our king. And I would encourage you to um, think about these statements and think about your own life. Because here's the, re- here's the reality, right? If he's our king, that's going to do something to my heart and the way I live, right? If he's more to me than, than my good luck charm or my, you know, my favorite security blanket or you know, some superstitious thing I believe in or a motivational speaker, if he's my king, then there's going to be things that come out of my life that show that, right? So let me just run through these statements. You can't believe that Jesus is the king of kings and still walk in submission to yourself. Those moments, right, where you know what God wants you to do, but you also know what feels comfortable, what feels good, or what you want to do. In that moment, you have to choose who you're going to submit to, right? And whoever you choose to submit to is your authority in that moment, in that decision, and essentially your king. Far too often, 
right? We live and operate as kings of our own world. You can't say, I believe Jesus is my king. Functionally in my life, though, I'm ruling the roost. I'm making the decisions. Despite what I know he wants me to do, I'm going to do my own thing. This is a tough one. You can't believe that Jesus is the king of kings and not see the scriptures as pure, beautiful, and authoritative. Because that's how he saw them. So much that he even told his disciples, guys, it has to be this way. He himself, he submitted himself to the will of the Father written in the Old Testament scriptures. Think about that. I mean, how many times do you think that the disciples tried to talk him into doing something different? We know Peter jumped in there a couple of times. Like, hey, no, we're not, we're not going to let them take you captive. They're not going to arrest you. And what do he say? Get behind me, Satan. Well, that's pretty harsh. Why do he say that? Because he was trying to get the point across to Peter. Listen, I didn't just make this up. It's God's will. Right? God has written this down in the scripture. It's what we're going to do. I'm going to Jerusalem to die there. Any attempt you try to make to get in the, in the way of that is getting in the way of God's will here. Jesus himself displayed to us that the scriptures are authoritative, they're beautiful, and they're pure. Now, the struggle is the culture that we live in today, even the, the, the church culture, is kind of a pick-and-choose kind of culture when it comes to the scriptures. There's so much about Jesus that we admire, things that he says that we like, but then the things we don't like or don't agree with, we just pretend like they're not there, Right? we just like a rock skipping across the water and we touch down on the things we like and where we're comfortable and the things that don't rock the boat too much and we just kind of leave all the rest of it behind. Listen, it's, it's either all or nothing with Christ. Jesus is saying, like, this is true. It's right. It's pure. It's beautiful. It's authoritative. Trust it. Lean not on your own understanding, right, but lean on my understanding. My ways are not your ways. You can't believe that Jesus is the king and still... And not see the scriptures as pure, beautiful, and authoritative. The next one is this. You can't believe that Jesus is the king of kings and still choose to live in isolation separated from the church. Jesus died to save the church. And he gives us commands. We call them the one another's. Love one another. Submit to one another. Honor one another. Serve one another. You can't obey these commands unless you're with one another. And so this idea that it's just me and Jesus and everybody else can take a hike doesn't work. You were created to live in community with other people, okay? Now, some of you have got that outgoing, bubbly personality, and you thrive being around people. Like, you cannot wait for this service to end so you can talk to people again, right? That's you, and that's part of the reason why you're here today. You just love being around people. Others of us are more introverted, right? Leave it, leave it to me, and I can... I could do with a smaller crowd. I could just me and a friend or two. I don't need the big crowd. Matter of fact, big crowds drain me. They don't, they don't energize me, right? But despite what, regardless of whatever personality I have, I'm called to live and walk in community. I need you, and you need me. We need to walk this thing out together. It's God's design for our lives, right? And so if I'm gonna say Jesus is my king, and he's saying, well, then you're created to walk in community with my church, Right? I can't walk and live in isolation. I've got to be connected to the church. You can't believe that Jesus is the king of kings and still find your moral bearings in the latest pop culture ideas. I, I mean, I don't care what George Clooney says. Or fill in the blank. Not being disrespectful of any of those folks, Right? I can't allow my moral bearings to come from something that's always changing 
shifting. What's right today is wrong tomorrow. What's wrong today is right tomorrow. Like, I've got to anchor my soul somewhere. If I'm going to be a dad and a husband and a friend, I've got to have an anchor. My anchor is the word of God. Now, we are at a time in church history where we're not facing, a, um, for the most part, an angry mob out there, right? Now, you wear your Christian t-shirt, more than likely, you're not going to get jumped, okay? However, we are approaching a time where things are drastically um, becoming more uh, different and contrasting and challenging in terms of culture. So there was an era in American history that we call Christendom, where everybody was a Christian, right? And everybody was the Leave it to Beaver family, and everybody got up and went to church on Sunday, and they wore suits and ties, and then they had dinner together, and you know that perfect scenario, right? That, that Christendom's dead now, okay? We're in a new era, and it's changing rapidly. And what's happening is that now more and more to anchor yourself to biblical principles is becoming more and more unpopular and so we don't have the angry mob waiting to jump us right like Paul faced but we are increasingly becoming right more and more set apart um, for the sake of persecution right because if you anchor yourself in scriptures you're you're a bigot you're closed-minded you're intolerant you're unloving and you're hateful in a lot of arenas right now right and so I mean Jesus wasn't that way was he and hateful, bigoted. He was the guy who, right, is running off the religious people who want to throw rocks at this lady caught in adultery and kill her. And he's like, no, I'm not going to throw a rock at her. Okay, whoever doesn't have sin, you get to throw the first rock. Who's going first? Nobody? See ya. All right, sweetheart. Listen, nobody's here to accuse you. Well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. He had, he had his soul anchored, in, in, right, in the truth of scriptures, but he displayed love and compassion for those who are broken, those who are even who are you know, stuck in sin. Like he showed a lot of patience and compassion there. So we're not talking about grabbing your bullhorn, right, and your poster board and go standing up on the corner of downtown Fort Worth yelling at people. It's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about anchoring yourself in biblical principles. What we are saying is this, that at the end of the day, what governs and guides our decisions is the truth of God's word. Even in, in moments where maybe it doesn't make sense or it's hard, you'd say, you know what, I'm still gonna do the right thing. I'm still gonna do the hard thing. And then last, I would say this, um, you can't say that you believe Jesus is your king of kings if you're still living for your own ambitions and pursuing your own mission in life, okay? So Jesus didn't call on everybody to sell your stuff and go live in a hut in Africa. Some of you, he may be, that's awesome, high five, I'm gonna come see you. The rest of us though, we've been called to stay engaged in this life here, right, our local community. So what we're saying is, though, the way we interact with our local community, whether we're stopping for gas, coffee, lunch, the person in the cubicle next to us, our neighbor, right, that we're interacting in such a way that we're living according to his mission for us, not our own, right? So those moments where it's like, hey, I want to do what I want to do, or do I want to do what Jesus is calling me to do here? When Jesus is your king, right, you submit to his mission for your life. Now, these are just a few indicatives of what it looks like to say, Jesus is my king. It doesn't have anything to do with bumper stickers, radio stations, t-shirts, lingo, church clothes, okay? Now, what I want to do is, so what happens from here in Acts 17 is uh, Paul and Silas, they pack up their stuff and they go to a place called Berea and they do the same thing again. Again, same story, just continuing over and over again. Here's what I want us to understand. In the same way, God has written us a story in the Bible 
In the same way, what we're reading about in Acts is still continuing today as a story. God is writing your story. Each person in this room has a story. And what it means to make Jesus your Lord and Savior is to say, God, I want to hand over the script writing to you, and I want you to write a better story than I can write myself. A good litmus test for who's writing your story is look and see who the hero is. Because when we're writing the story, we write ourselves in as the hero every time. Right? We say the day. We were right and they were wrong. We had that idea first. If they would only do it my way, right? What are we saying? I know what's best. And that's the way we tend to write our own stories. But when we submit our lives to Christ, we're saying, is God, you write a better story. I don't want to be the hero anymore. Can, can I let you in on something? You are a lousy hero. I am too, right? We make lousy heroes, don't we? We're only heroes if we write the story from our perspective, right? Because we write it in and nobody applauds when they need to applaud. Nobody laughs when we're trying to be funny. Nobody shows us respect when we're trying to, right, show that we're respectable. We make lousy, we make for lousy heroes. One of the best ways to wreck your marriage, men, is try to be the hero. Same thing, ladies. This is the point of the gospel, God is saying, hey, I'm sending you my son to be your hero, to superintend your story, to take what was intended for evil and flip it and turn it for good, to write a better story with your life than you can write for yourself. But here's the thing, he gets to be the hero, and we just become the supporting cast. And that's what it means to give your life to Christ and make him your king. Now, I'm gonna invite our worship team to come back up and pray for, for you and myself, all of us, um, I don't know if, you know, maybe you're at that place in your journey today where, like, for the first time, you're like, you know what? It's time for me to give my life to Christ. Done. Right here. I'm going to make him my king. Or if you're like a lot of the rest of us and you realize you've done that many times and you need to do it again. <laughs> right? Once again, make that declaration, God, recalibrate my heart, become my king again. Some of us today, you might be in a totally different place. Maybe God's been saying something to you for a while, and you've just been like putting it off. You ever do that? Putting it off? So you don't need to hear a new word from the Lord. You need to respond to what he's already said. And maybe that's where you are today. Um, I'm going to pray for us. Um, when we stand to sing in a minute, our worship uh, team is going to be leading us. Our prayer partners will be in the back. They typically stand over towards our prayer and counseling rooms. They'd be honored to pray with you, to talk about what it means to become a Christian or to surrender your life to Christ or, you know, to surrender your life to Christ again. Um, I'm going to encourage you to, 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 to go talk with one of them if that's where you are. Um, you want to stay seated, you can. You want to stand and sing, you can do that as well. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you for this powerful gospel, this, this truth that supersedes all other truths. And God, we are so prone to forget the good news of Jesus. God, we're so prone to trust and lean on our own understanding. And today, once again from the scriptures, you've shown us the, the, the value and the worth and the beauty of your word. And God, we know, we know that when we submit our lives to the truth of scripture, God, we know that oftentimes you're gonna write some hard chapters for us. You're gonna lead us down tough roads, but we can we can rest and we can know that you are with us and you are good. 
God, I'd rather walk through a hard chapter that you're writing than the best chapter I could ever write for myself. So, Father, now we ask for your spirit to move in this room, to speak to our hearts. God, where there needs to be submission, I pray that you could call us into submission. Meet us where we are, Father, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus.